First John chapter one, verses five through ten. Give ear to the word of God. John writes, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, in, in some ways, in a lot of ways, our text this morning teaches us a right view of sin. And in doing that, it teaches us a right view of ourselves as believers in Christ in relation to sin. Now, you, you might think to yourself, you know, we're Christians, pastor. We know what sin is. We all, we, we all hear the word. We know our Bibles. And that such a lesson should be kind of unnecessary for us. You know, we, we kind of assume, like a lot of Christian words, biblical words, we kind of think that we just sort of presume that we have an understanding of it intuitively and nobody needs to be uh, defining these kinds of terms. We figure we know what sin is. We know what the right relationship of a Christian to sin is in this life. Um, but I, I think it's, it's the case um, that it's not really the case that that's true at all. And one of the things you might think of, it's not just not true in our day. It wasn't even true in John's day. Otherwise, these verses wouldn't have been needed. Think about that. In the apostle's own day, he's having to write to a church to make sure they know the right view of sin in relation to them as Christians. A number of years ago, I forget the author, there was a, an author that wrote a book called Whatever Happened to Sin? And I think one of the reasons that book was written was uh, you don't hear about it. You don't hear the word sin much in church today. You don't hear sin being preached about in churches very often today. <clears throat> and why, why is that? It's an uncomfortable subject. And we don't want, above all things in churches today, we don't want to be made uncomfortable in the slightest, right? And so we don't talk about sin. In fact, what do we do? You know, we talk about not thinking we don't need a, a lesson on, on what sin is and what it is to us. Um, how often do we redefine sin, even as Christians? How often have you seen a... a um, what we might think of as a, an admission of guilt or a confession of wrongdoing in the public square by a, by a well-known individual or by someone. And the word sin is nowhere on the page. In fact, even the most gross acts of immorality are often called things like mistakes. It's as if they, they had a math problem wrong on a page. There's almost no real acknowledgement of, a, of the depth of wrongdoing uh, by many uh, in our day. Well, back in, in verse 5, we started looking at that last Sunday. <clears throat> back in verse 5, John started these things with our view of God, didn't he? And what does he say in verse 5? He says, this is the message that we proclaim to you. What? That God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And there's, there's a reason that John starts with a view of God. It's key that you and I start with our view of God because our view of God, in many ways, will, in a lot of ways, determine your view of yourself and also your view of sin. 
Your view of God will determine your view of sin. And your view of God will determine your view of yourself as well. A low view of God, a low view of God and his holiness will lead to a high view of ourselves. That's kind of how it works. When we think God is little, we think of ourselves as quite quite large in some ways. And we also, if we have a low view of God, we'll have a low view of our sin, won't we? It's when you have a right view of God's holiness and majesty that we have a right view, more of a right view of ourselves and of our sin in relation to God. A right view of God will give us a right view of ourselves in relation to him and a much higher view of our sins against him. You think about Isaiah chapter 6, that great chapter of Isaiah, the call of Isaiah the prophet. Remember, he had that vision of the Lord, lofty and exalted, a train of his robe filling the temple, and the seraphim saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And what was the, what was the reaction? What was the effect of that on Isaiah? Remember, Isaiah was a prophet. Isaiah was somebody, if you and I were living in his day, we would think of him as the holy man of God, and he's up here and we're down here. We wouldn't have, we wouldn't have thought of him as, oh, that guy Isaiah. Oh here, oh, here comes Isaiah across the street. Get away from him. He's a bad, he's a bad man, right? We would have thought of him as eminently holy, but when he, when he saw that vision of God and his holiness, he was, he was rocked, wasn't he? And he said, woe is me. I'm undone, for I'm a man of unclean lips. In other words, when he thought of God's holiness, what did he think of? Then he really saw his sin. And for a prophet, the one who's supposed to speak for God, to have unclean lips is a bad thing. And God, by his grace, atoned for his sin. Remember the vision, the coal from the altar, the place of sacrifice. The angel touched his mouth with it and said, your sin is atoned for. And then he was able to go and preach God's message. But it was a right view of God's holiness, a glimpse of God's holiness that shattered him and made him realize how sinful he really was. And then on his own, he had no hope uh, before God. We've seen in the last couple weeks in our study in this book that uh, the false teachers that John was dealing with were what we might think of as the early Gnostics. And those false teachers whom John is refuting in this letter were the Gnostics or early, an early version of them. And what, remember what they taught? They had a kind of a, a, a matter-spirit dualism uh, they taught that uh, a false view of creation and a false view of God and their false view of God and creation had a drastic effect on what they taught about sin. And that's what John deals with in our text. And so the, the early Gnostics, what they taught was a it's a kind of a pagan form of think about the New Age movement. It's that kind of a, of a thinking. Uh, they taught a, a, a spirit matter dualism in which the material world, you know, the flesh and bone, anything physical was inherently evil. It wasn't supposed to be, and so the goal, just like the goal of the New Age movement today, is to kind of get away from the physical, to be freed from the physical, to become spiritual, be one with the universe, all that kind of a stuff. That was the sort of thing that they, that they taught, but because they taught the material world was evil and the spiritual world alone was good, they also taught that it didn't matter how you lived, it, that it didn't matter what you did with these physical bodies because they're evil and God's going to do away with them anyway. Uh, that's what they taught, uh, so to speak. And basically they thought they taught that the things done with your bodies or in our bodies, they would say that that, that in no way can contaminate uh, or corrupt the spiritual in us. In other words, they thought the spiritual in you is the real you, that your body doesn't matter. Now, as I'm saying that, maybe some of you are thinking, I know Christians who kind of talk like that. That your body's not really any part of you. It, it certainly is. Uh, part of the Christian hope is the resurrection from the dead. 
Jesus died to pay for you for your salvation, not just of your soul, but of your body as well. And one day you will have a body in heaven, body and soul, all of you. Jesus Christ died to save if you're a believer. But the Gnostics said, well, the, the physical body, it doesn't matter what you do in it. And even more than that, even no matter what you do with it, it can't contaminate or corrupt in any way or bring guilt upon your spirit. It's kind of insulated, and it's, a, it's kind of a dichotomy. It can't render you guilty before God. Well, so what John deals with in our text uh, is a false view of sin and the various ways that that false view of sin reared its ugly head in the church. And while you and I, you know, maybe every time I say the word Gnostic, your eyes kind of glaze over, you know, well, we don't have to deal with that per se, possibly in our day, although I think it's that kind of a mindset is becoming much more prevalent than we might think. We might not deal with the same exact heresy in our day, but in some ways, the very same mindset is as prevalent today as it has ever been. And so John's message in 1 John and throughout the book uh, is as relevant to us as it has ever been in the history of the church. The very same mindset is found in other forms seeking to lead Christians astray. And so I believe there's a number of lessons for us to learn uh, in our day, in our text, if we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear what God would teach us in this passage. So three times you might notice in our text, in these short verses here, 5 through 10, three different times John introduces some aspect of the false teachers, of his, those of his opponents, by using the phrase, if we say... And so I'm going to sort of outline our, our sermon this morning around those three sayings. If we say is found in verses 6, 8, and 10. And each of those statements that John kind of puts in our mouths in some way represents, <clears throat> it represents a denial of sin. Some, some form or another of these things are a denial of sin. The first one we looked at last week in verse 6 where he says, <clears throat> if we say we have fellowship with him, that is with God, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So this first denial of sin is in some ways the denial of sin's consequences, right? It's saying it doesn't matter. There's no consequence for us as believers if we sin. And in some ways, this takes the form of a gross antinomianism or licentiousness, you know, just kind of living in sin as you please and none of it matters. That's, that's as prevalent today as it's ever been. This is the false teaching that says that you can live however you please, continuing to live in sin, and yet still be right with God. I don't think it takes much effort to see that this particular lie is as prevalent in our day as it has ever been. Um, to say the least, many profess faith in Christ who, who show by their actions they do not possess faith in Christ. They say they're believers, they say they're in Christ, but their actions show Otherwise, how many professing believers today live in such a way that is entirely indistinguishable from unbelievers? Entirely conformed to the world around them. If, some, if they were to tell their friends and neighbors they were believers, their friends and neighbors would be very surprised if they had any clue what that meant to be a Christian. Yet such people blindly assume that all is well with their souls. And what, is, what does John say? They are deceiving themselves and the truth is not in them. In fact, you know, first John, if I can give you a preview of things to come. First John, remember what it's about? We looked at it a couple weeks ago in, in first John five thirteen, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why? So that you may know 
that you have eternal life. John wants us to have assurance. He wants us to know for sure that we are believers and that we are saved in Jesus Christ. He doesn't want believers walking around wondering if they're right with God. He doesn't want you as believers. God doesn't want you as a believer to walk around without assurance, wondering if if I die tonight, am I going to be in heaven? Am I right with God? Am I reconciled and adopted by God and Jesus Christ? Well, throughout the letter, John gives what we would call three, for the lack of a better term, three sort of tests for your Christianity. And they're not meant to be tricks. They're not meant to make sincere believers think less of their faith. They're meant to assure you. But I I summarize them. uh, Some do it differently, but uh, I use an an acronym to help me remember it. And that is L-O-T, like lot. Remember, uh, don't think about Sodom and Gomorrah in this regard, but lot. Love, obedience, and truth. In other words, one is love for the brethren. One of the ways you can know and assure your hearts before your conscience that you're a believer is, do you love other Christians? Do you have a sincere love for the brethren? Do you like to be around other Christians, or, or do you avoid them like the plague? Obedience. We're going to look at that here in our text a little bit. And then truth, holding to the truth that God has revealed, especially about Jesus Christ. We'll look at 1 John, 1 John 2, verses 3 to 6. Um, he, he brings up one of these tests. He says, and by this we know that we have come to know him, to know Christ. How is that? If we keep his commandments. He's not saying you're saved by obeying, but he's saying the way that you know that you've come to know Christ is obeying his commandments. Whoever says, there's that phrase again, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected by this. We may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, that's in Christ ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. He's not talking about perfectionism. He's not talking about a sinless life. He's just saying if you're really in Christ, it'll change how you live. You will walk in general in obedience to the commands of God. That is not legalism. Obeying the commandments of God is not legalism. Preaching the law of God is not legalism. What does John say in 1 John 5, 3? This is the love... This is love for God. What? That we keep his commandments and his commandments, he says, are not burdensome. That's, he says that's love, not legalism. John is not teaching legalism. He's not teaching a kind of works-based salvation. He's simply stating the plain fact, the biblical truth, as James puts it in James 2.26, that faith without works is what? Dead. Can that kind of a faith save? No. James isn't saying that works save you, but he's saying that the kind of faith that does also brings about works. A life characterized by repentance from sin and in obedience, however imperfect it may be, to God's commandments, it's evidence of a true and living faith. That's what he's talking about. It's the evidence of a true and living faith. Well, the second form of denial of sin is not just the denial of the consequences of sin, It's a denial of the sinful nature. And this is what he takes up in verse 8. Look at verse 8. He says, if we say we have no sin, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, to say that we have no sin probably means something a little bit different 
than, than just saying, I don't think what John is saying here is that we haven't sinned. I think he gets to that in verse 10. Um, I think when he says we have no sin, what is being taught by the false teachers, the Gnostics and others, uh, is to say that there's an absence of sin in our very natures. They're saying that we are not corrupted by the fall. We have not fallen in Adam's sin. It's a denial of the fall. It's a denial of what we might call original sin. It's a denial of the corruption of our natures in Adam's fall. The Gnostics would not, not only deny that sin makes you guilty before God and cuts you off from having fellowship with him, they would also deny that what the things the scriptures call sin spring from any defect or corruption in our nature. They would say not only that such things were not inherently sinful, in other words, they don't matter, but also that things such as that don't make the person spiritually uh, sinful by nature. They're denying there's anything sinful in your very nature, including especially probably your spiritual aspect. So according to them, it's as if the inner spiritual person is safely insulated from the contamination of the outward, the material, and the sinful, no matter what the person did outwardly. But what, what does John say about such a thing? John says there, if we claim to have no sin, what? We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. What, what does the Bible say about that? What does the Bible say about the condition of our natures since the fall? Uh, Psalm 51.5, David says this of himself. Psalm 51.5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. What's he saying? Brought forth, I think, is a reference to being born. But he goes, he goes behind that, too. He says, even in, in the conception of him, in sin did my mother conceive me. What is he saying? He's not saying that he was conceived out of wedlock. He's not saying my mother sinned when she you know, was involved in my conception uh, at all. He's not saying that. He's saying that he was fallen in sin even before his birth, even at his very conception. That's how far sin reached. All mankind outside of Christ, uh, we are not just imperfect. We are not just guilty of the sins committed against God. We are sinners by nature. That is what the, the, the clear teaching of the Bible is. Sin is not just what we do. Sin is what we are outside of Christ. We sin because we are sinners. We are not just sinners because we sin. You get the difference? Our sinful nature, our fallen nature, is the stream from which our sins flow. And so there's no one ever born who is not by nature a sinner and dead in sin before God. That's what the Bible talks about in Ephesians 2.1 where Paul says that before coming to Christ for salvation, he says we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we used to walk. Dead in sins. In Ephesians 2.3 he says that we were, quote, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By nature. In Romans 5.12, Paul says this. <coughs> Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all, sin, because all sinned. What does that mean? That means sin came into the world and spread to all mankind through the sin of the one man, Adam. 
And the fact that all men sin and die is the proof that, that, that death spread where sin spread. In other words, if you follow Paul's argument, he's saying, you know, uh, here's a quiz. This won't be a hard one. What's the mortality rate among human beings in human history? With two exceptions, right? Elijah and Enoch. In all the history of humanity, there have been two people who never physically died. Enoch and Elijah, who God took up to heaven directly, translated them, so to speak, and took them home without physical death. But for the rest of us, for the rest of us mere mortals, what is the mortality rate of humanity? 100%. I guess if you take those two people out, I don't know what the number would be, but basically 100%, right? Why is that? Paul says it's, it's, it's proof. It shows that we all fell in Adam, that we all became sinners because of Adam's fall. Death and our sins is the evidence of the fall and of original sin in each of us. The Shorter Catechism, question 18, puts it this way. Uh, wherein, nobody talks like this, but wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate or condition into which man fell? In other words, how sinful are we? What, was the, what were the results upon the rest of us of the fall in the Garden of Eden? It says this, the sinfulness of the estate into which man fell consists, here they are, of the guilt of Adam's first sin. In other words, we all sinned when Adam sinned. That offends many people, but it's true. When he fell, we fell. His sin was also our sin because he represented us just like Christ represents us when we were in him. So that the sinfulness that, that is in ours is, is consists of the guilt of Adam's first sin, the lack of original righteousness. When Adam was first created, he was not a sinner. He was righteous before God until he fell. That's no longer there. That is gone. And here it is. And the corruption of his whole nature, that's us, the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. So, in other words, the fall didn't just make us guilty of Adam's sin. The fall didn't just remove that original holiness or righteousness with which we would have had before God and with God. It also made our, our very natures corrupted with sin. Every part of us, in some way, has fallen into sin outside of Christ. No one can rightly claim to be without sin. The scriptures are abundantly clear, and both history and personal experience bear witness to this fact. We all know we're sinners, if we're honest. We all know by our consciences that we are sinners before God. People fear death. You know, it's often said that people fear death because they fear the unknown. I think that's wrong. I think people fear death because they fear the known. Deep down in their heart of hearts, people, everyone knows that they are, they are guilty before God, and so death frightens them because they, they have a brain. They have common sense in some regard. It's not the unknown, it's the known. Their conscience tells them they are not fit on their own to stand before God. I believe that is proof as well of the fall of mankind. A third form of denial of sin is found in verse 10 where John says this, If we say we have not sinned, that's a different claim. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Keeping in mind that all three of these denials of sin are probably in some way very closely related. You can't separate them necessarily uh, kind of thing. Uh, this denial is something like a, some kind of form 
of what we might call perfectionism. Perfectionism. What is perfectionism? It's the idea that a believer can in some way reach the point of sinless perfection in this life. So that you, are, that you and I, according to this, might actually be able to cease sinning in this life altogether. Does the Bible teach that anywhere? The Bible teaches sanctification. The Bible teaches that, even as we're reading in 1 John, obedience is a, is a, a sign, an evidence of a true and living faith and salvation in Christ. But, but nowhere does the Bible teach us that in this life we can reach sinless perfection uh, to any degree such as that. For anyone, especially somebody claiming to be a believer in Christ, um, that to claim that he or she has not committed a sin, it, it probably seems kind of laughable to us if it wasn't so serious. But the doctrine of perfectionism has been and still is taught in many forms and in many Christian circles. Uh, there, there, it, it is something that you would think kind of ceased to exist you know, hundreds of years ago, who could possibly believe such a thing? But these things are still taught and held uh, by, by many today. It's been taught by, here's one of those other words that makes your eyes glaze over, by the Pelagians. Named for Pelagius, a, a man, a false teacher that Augustine, since uh, Jonathan mentioned him this morning, uh, had to uh, deal with in his teaching. What, what Pelagius taught, he denied original sin. He said, oh no, we, you, your, your, your nature is not fallen. Because of the fall. He would say every human being that was ever born is born perfectly sinless and able not to sin on their own. That the only sins that the only thing that makes you a sinner is at some point you actually committing a sin. And that's when you start to become a sinner. The Bible doesn't teach that. So Augustine had to contend with him uh, over that. Uh, some form of perfectionism is perfectionism is even taught by some in Roman Catholicism. It is taught by many in the Arminian and Wesleyan circles as well. These doctrines are not as, as, uh, as hard to find as you might, as you might think. Uh, interestingly, Charles Hodge notes that back in the 5th century, the Council of Carthage, he, Carthage, he writes this, the Pelagians, that was when he was still alive, Pelagius, the Pelagians were condemned at that council, among other things, for teaching, quote, that the declaration of the Apostle John, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, is, they would say, as to some, a mere expression of humility. Hard to imagine somebody claiming to be a Christian teacher saying such a thing. You know that verse we just read in First John that says if we say we have no sin, you know, verse 8, uh, we, we deceive ourselves and the truth is in us. They don't mean everybody. That's really what they're saying. It doesn't apply to everybody. In fact, for some such as me or you or the other perfect people, it's just a humble way of talking. No wonder they were condemned by that council of Carthage back in that day. He goes on to point out they were also condemned, if you can imagine this, for teaching, quote, that the petition in the Lord's prayer, forgive us our trespasses, is not suited to the saints. In other words, that great pattern prayer, the Lord's Prayer, which teaches us all the things about prayer that we need to learn, which one of the most prominent requests is, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, they would say, well, that doesn't really apply to all of us. Some of us get to a point where you don't need to pray that anymore. 
you imagine the, the hubris to say such a thing as that? Imagine the, the arrogance for someone who claims to be a believer in Christ to dismiss those two particular texts of Scripture out of hand as no longer applying to them. And yet, think about this. We might think it's crazy, but an entire church council had to be called to deal with, among other things, that view. It's pointed out by many that, uh, that in many cases, those who teach some form of perfectionism, how do they get there? How do they arrive at it? How do they make their arguments for it? Well, they do so by dumbing down or lowering the standards of God's law. They also do it, in another sense, by externalizing God's law. In other words, they say it's just the outward act. We see arguments like this, even in the PCA sometimes. They'll say certain, certain sins, the only thing that matters is the outward act. And as long as you don't do the outward act, it's fine. Is that what the Bible teaches? No, heaven forbid. It says no such thing. Externalizing the, law, the idea of sin and the law of God, uh, where do you see that in Scripture? You see bad examples of it. You see the, the rich young ruler, remember him? Remember the, the man who ran to Jesus in front of everybody? He, he, he didn't, didn't come at night, didn't try to hide. And he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Like, it, this couldn't be better scripted for evangelism, right? Like, it, you ever have somebody ask you that? Anybody ever run up to you in public and say, hey, you're a Christian. How do I get saved? I'd be looking for the hidden camera. Be like, what is going on around here? Okay, who's, who's pranking me, right? He says, good teacher, what do I have to do? And Jesus is like, why do you call me good? Now, Jesus wasn't saying he himself wasn't good, but he's asking him, do you know who you're talking to? And why do you say such a thing? And what does the guy say? He says, Jesus lists a number of the commandments. He says, you've heard the commandments, you know, honor father and mother, do not commit murder. I forget the exact ones he, he lists, but he lists them, the Ten Commandments. Remember the man's response? All these I have what? Kept from my youth. Been there, done that, got the T-shirt. I've been doing that. What else you got for me, Jesus? Right? Why, was he, why did he think that? Ha, was he sinless? Was he the first man ever in the history of humanity since Adam's fall, uh, other than Jesus himself, to be sin? Did he run up to Jesus kind of thinking, it's you and me. Everybody, these other people, who I don't know about them, but you, know, you and me, we're good. What else do you want? What do I got to do? What other extra thing do I have to do? Uh, he said, I've done all these things since my youth. How could he have possibly thought that besides being arrogant and self-deceived? Among other things, he probably externalized God's law. He probably said, well, I've never killed anybody. Thou shalt not murder. Check. Last I checked, I haven't killed anybody. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, I haven't done that. What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount about that? If you hate someone, you've murdered. If you've lusted, you've committed adultery. In other words, it's not just the outward actions. It's the, it's the lust, the, the dispositions of the heart and things like that that are sinful as well. That man, at the very least, externalized the commandments of God. That kind of perfectionistic teaching can lead to nothing but hypocrisy and hardness of heart. And it often leads to apostasy and condemnation. Think about it. Your conscience tells you loud and clear over and over again that you're a sinner. Even as a Christian, it does that. It convicts you of sin. But you're telling people and telling yourself at some point, if you hold that view, that you're sinless. At some point, you're hardening your heart and you're searing your conscience. And what does John say about anyone who would claim to not have sinned? 
Remember, every time it's like they deceive themselves, they lie. He doesn't just say they lie. He doesn't just say they deceive themselves, verse 8. Worse than that, he says that if we say such a thing, we make him, God, a liar. Now you've gone from you lying or being self-deceived to accusing God of being dishonest. You make God a liar and his word is not in us if we say that. Why, why is that? Why is it? How do you make God a liar if you claim you have never sinned? What, is God, what does God's word say about such things? It's, I have to say it's difficult to know where to start because the Bible is so clear on this in so many different passages. The, maybe the first one that comes to your mind as well as mine, Romans 3, verse 23. One of the best known passages on this topic, it says there, Paul says, what? For all have what? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. Every last one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Earlier in that same chapter in Romans 3.10, Paul says this. None is righteous. And then he adds what? No, not one. Now, why does the Bible, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, add that phrase, no, not one? And it does it more than once. Because God knows, well, that we would think, well, he doesn't mean none. He means most people. He, he knows the pride of our hearts to say, well, that's, that's those other bad people. It's not me. And so he says, no, not one. None who does good. No, not one. Not one at all. Uh, Ecclesiastes 7.20, it says this, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Surely. None, none can be found. Paul says in Romans 3, verse 4, he says, Let God be true, but every man a liar. May you and I who believe in Jesus Christ never dare to contradict God's word, calling him a liar in the process. You know, that's what we do. When you take a passage of the Bible and you say, well, it doesn't mean that. God doesn't, God doesn't really say that. It sounds like, like the serpent in the, in, the, in the garden, doesn't it? Has God really said, we're calling God a liar? When we contradict his word in such a way. Well, the denial of sin uh, for the Christian, that's not the way for us to deal with sin, is it? That's what the Gnostics and many in our day do as well. We don't deny sin by denying our fallen natures, by denying <coughs> that we have sinned. We don't redefine God's law by lowering its standard of perfection upon us. Uh, that is not the way to fellowship with God and joy in the Christian life, is it? Remember what John says in verse 4, <coughs> he said, we're writing these things to you that our joy may be complete. One of the things that these Gnostic false teachers did was their teaching robbed people of joy. The teaching of perfectionism robs Christians of joy. The denial of our sins does not lead to fellowship with God and to joy. The confession of our sins and God's forgiveness of our sins is what does that. John says the way of the Christian is not to deny your sin, not to redefine it or lower God's standards, but to confess our sin. Look at verse 9. He says, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As Christians, we are not to deny our sin. We are to confess our sin to God in humble repentance. And if we do that, the peace of heart and conscience that we will have will not be the false peace of perfectionism or the false peace 
of false gospels or any other such thing. It'll be the real peace of being reconciled to God and having fellowship with him by being forgiven in Jesus Christ. In fact, here in verse 9 is one of those great and precious promises of God in the scripture for those who confess their sins to him. It's, it's the one that jumps to my mind every time we pray the prayer of adoration and confession. That God promises. You know, sometimes in our weaknesses, when we, if we're really convicted of our sins, we might think, you know, I've sinned so many times and I'm always coming back to God and confessing my sin. At some point, he's just going to say, that's enough. And so what does he do? He gives us encouragement and says, no, I'm faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness if you come to him in, in humble confession of sin. How is it possible for God to do that and still remain holy? How can God forgive our sins and cleanse us from our unrighteousness? How can an infinitely holy and just God, who in no way lowers his standards, God, you know, God does not deal with our sins by sweeping them under the rug. He does not deal with our sins by dumbing down his law and saying, well, you know, it, it's what we do sometimes in education. Somebody can't make the grade, so what do you do? You grade on a curve, or you lower the standard. Well, I'm not getting enough A's so in the class, so I better you know, grade on a curve or lower the standard. God doesn't do any of that. Um, how does he forgive us then? How do we have fellowship with God if that's the case? He does that. He tells us in verse 7. He says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in what? And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That is how God can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. That is why God can be faithful and just in forgiving us all of our sins and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. Why is it? The righteous one himself, the only righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ, as John calls him, the very son of God. The Lord Jesus died on the cross to pay in full the infinite debt of our sins in order to reconcile us to God. That and that alone is why God can be not only faithful to forgive your sins. In other words, you can count on him to do it, but you can know that he's not in any way violating his own holiness in doing so. He's not violating his justice when he forgives your sin because Christ paid your debt in full. We sang this morning, and I won't try to sing it again, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's what that's about. That's what that's, that's the hymn writer is talking about. It's because Christ died to pay in full the debt of our sin that God can be that God can be faithful and also be just or righteous in forgiving us our sins. And so I asked this morning, do you do you know yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God? Do you know, contrary to the false teachers that John dealt with, do you know that you have sinned not just against other people, but against God himself in transgressing his holy law in your thoughts and in your words and in your actions. You know, sin, uh, sin is a theological concept. What does is, what is, what is, uh, David say in Psalm 31? Against you and you only I have sinned. He wasn't saying that he didn't sin against any other person. But sin is, is primarily offense against God himself. And that is what our sins are. Do you, do you confess and do you know that you're a sinner before God? Have you repented of your sins and turned to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith? For salvation from your sin. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. I think Robin might have mentioned this passage last week or the week before. Isaiah 55 verses 6 
and 7, it says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. In other words, repent. Let him turn, return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, here it is, for he will abundantly pardon. It's because we have abundant sin, don't we? But God abundantly pardons. You're not just getting into heaven by the skin of your teeth, by the grace of God. All of your sins are washed away by faith in Jesus Christ and his blood. And what about those of us who have already turned to Christ for salvation by faith in him? Ian Hamilton writes the following. He says, it is a simple test of a person's Christian profession to ask whether he agrees with God, uh, whether he agrees with what God says about him in his word, particularly in relation to sin. What God says is deeply humbling. He quotes Jeremiah 17, 9 and Romans 3. What God says is deeply humbling, but is also wonderfully comforting because confession brings to us the hope of forgiveness and cleansing in Christ. Confession of sin to God brings the hope of forgiveness and cleansing in Christ. That in some way is what confessing our sins really is. In fact, the word, you can't always define words by their etymology, by the parts of the word. But the Greek word for confessing means to to say with, in other words, to say the same thing as God says. That's what confessing really amounts to. It's, it's saying what God says about us and our sin. That's really what confession is, agreeing with God about ourselves and what God says about our guilt and our sin, the corruption of our natures and the offenses of our transgressions against him. And what a blessing and comfort it is to everyone who's a believer in Jesus Christ, knowing that our God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all, not most, not some, all of our unrighteousness. So let us, as, as the writer here says, John says, walk in the light. Let us confess our sins along the way and be quick to forgive each other as we have been forgiven ourselves and do all that to the glory of God. Amen.